going to do something you're never supposed to do. I want to apologize right now because today might be one of those kind of hold on weeks. Um, just as a, a heads up. So um, just want to share a little over a month ago, my wife and I were on vacation. We were um, over in Pagosa Springs, which is one of the places that we just love being. Um, one of the, the, the hikes that we've never done there uh, while being there was uh, the hike up Chimney Rock. Now, Chimney Rock is normally uh, driving up to it and then kind of walking around it. Uh, but this time of year, the road's closed and you can hike up. It was a beautiful day, a little bit cold, but the sun was out and there was only a tiny bit of snow, so we endeavored to see how far we would get. Now, with two little kids, we knew we were probably not going to get to the top. But we endeavored and we started up the road and before long we made the decision to leave the road and to leave the trail and to forge our own way, which is something that we actually do a lot as a family. It's one of my favorite ways to hike. Now usually in a place like Chimney Rock or other big kind of park areas, you don't want to do that because you will destroy things. But in the winter, when there's snow and ice in the ground, you can forge your own way without really worrying about hurting things and other people following your tracks and destroying things and making their own way. So we looked up and we said, hey, we're going to go up to that rock. We're going to get there. And I didn't think we'd really make it all the way, but I kind of hoped. You know, there's always that vain hope that you have when you're hiking with little kids that you will get to where you wanted to be. Long story short, we did not get there. But the reason we didn't get there is not because we couldn't go on. It's not because the kids were too pouty or too tired or whatever. It was because the, the path we had forged gave us no way to Chimney Rock. We went up and we went up and we went up and eventually we got up as high as we could go before we were going to have to go down again and then go up and climb a cliff to get to Chimney Rock. So we looked at it and we said, well, that was fun. That was a great day. We took some pictures, we had a snack, and we turned around and went back. And I want to tell you, it is all well and good on a family hike, on a family vacation, to take the path that doesn't get you to where you want to go. But it is not okay for eternity. It is a terrible idea, in fact, to take the wrong path that will not get you to the Father that will not get you to salvation when eternity is on the line. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 14, verse 6. Now we don't often look at a single verse uh, when we're preaching through. It's usually more like a paragraph or a few verses together. Um, but as we were, and I was preparing for last week's message and which verse 6 was supposed to be a part of, I realized that I could do no justice to Jesus' words, that being a tag-on to the rest of the sermon. So I pulled that out and added, and here we are with one verse. And by one verse, I mean about a hundred. Because we are not going to stay in John chapter 14, verse 6 alone, but we are going to be moving through Scripture like crazy today. It's really important when you look at one verse to have the context of what you're looking at. And so just a reminder, last week what we talked about out of the first five verses of this chapter was, was how to recover from a troubled heart. For Jesus commands his followers to not have troubled hearts. 
And we know all too well that too often we do have troubled hearts. And so what do we see in that? Does Jesus give us so that we might not? It's what we looked at last week. And I just want to tell you, this sermon is the answer to that. It's the final answer to that in a lot of ways. This one verse, let me read it for us. It's one that many of us probably have memorized, but last week, as I tried to say it from memory, I messed it up at least eight times. So I'm going to not do that this week, um, because last week I said he is the light, and it's supposed to be life. Some of you pointed that out to me lovingly and graciously. <laughs> Let me read through this whole passage. I want to read one through six again for us, though, just so that we hear it all together. Jesus says, in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. You know that the way to where I am going, or you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, this is verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me read that one more time for us. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Thanks, Rick. Friends, I want to tell you, and you may already know this, but this is the most offensive verse in Scripture. This single verse is the most offensive verse in Scripture as Jesus declares that he and no other way will get you to God, will get you saved. It is also the most beautiful verse in Scripture, at least in my opinion. And there are lots of verses to contend with that. But it is striking to me that, that this verse can be both offensive and beautiful. And what makes the difference for whether you hear it as offensive or as beautiful is which side of this verse you are on. For the sinner, a need of salvation who may be looking but not finding yet that road, that path to salvation, it is offensive. But for the sinner who has been saved, this verse is beautiful because it takes all of our troubled heart, our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our wonders about whether or not we could be saved at all and tells us yes. And it is beautiful. Now before we look at Jesus' claims here to be the way, the truth, and the life, we must first think through what the response is. What are these responding to? For Jesus to be and to declare himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, he is responding to the fact that you and I are or were people who were lost, who were led astray, and who were spiritually dead in our sin. Jesus says, I am the way, 
that responds to our lostness. He says, I am the truth, which responds to the lies that we believe, that we have been told, and that we continue in. And he is the life in response to the deadness that we are. And when you think through these three things, followed by what Jesus says, which is that I am the only way to the Father, it should cause us to wonder about other attempted ways, other paths, if you will. Like our path, hiking with our family, that didn't lead to where we wanted it to go. What are the other paths? And we don't have time for all the other paths. Because there are as many paths as there are people in this world. But when you think about the, the various paths that people take in attempt to get to God or to salvation or to peace, to not having a troubled heart, what are some of those paths? The first is the path of religion. The path of religion. Religion is simply this, that one might follow a formula to get what they want from God. For example, you do the right things and you don't do the wrong things and you'll be okay. The trouble is that there is no one who has or can do or will do their religion perfectly. There is no one who can do any religion that has ever been created by man or come from the divine goodness of God that can follow them. Religion requires perfection. Now, I don't know about you, but I have not attained to that, which means I have no hope if religion is my path. This could be any world religion that you might think of or contemplate, and it will be also, of course, the Christian religion. Because Christian religion also gets you nowhere unless you happen to be perfect at it. In Christian religion, we baptize. In the Christian religion, we take the Lord's Supper. We do it weekly, some every, you know, month or every six months and all kinds of different times. We show up to church. We might open our Bibles during the week. We might pray at various times. But none of these things will save you. None of these things, do, will, in doing them, will result in you being any closer to the Father. They are dead if they are done apart from Christ. It's dangerous, in fact, to do these things apart from Christ. Did you know that? Did you know that it is dangerous to practice the Christian religion without Christ in your life? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When we take the Lord's Supper weekly, 
we are taking a risk. Hear that. Because if we eat and drink of this body and this bread apart from Christ, we are potentially drinking judgment upon ourselves. What does it mean to do it in, un, in an unworthy manner? Certainly none of us are worthy of this meal. We are only worthy if Christ has made us so. If we have been adopted and given his holiness that we might eat of it. It is dangerous to practice Christian religion apart from Christ. Another one of the dangers that we may see and face in that is that we think that we're all set because we came to church on Sunday morning or we watched the video because we prayed, because we read our Bibles. We think that we're okay because one time in our life we said a prayer and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our, as our Savior. All the while we go 30, 40, 50, 60, even 100 years with Him not being our Lord. If He's not our Lord, He's not our Savior. Another kind of religion, religious path that I've seen people take is they say this, Grandma took me to church when I was a kid. I'm okay. Grandma might be, but you're not. Grandma might be, but you are not. There is no such thing as being saved by vicarious religion. One must place their faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The Apostle Paul uh, shows us this in Philippians chapter 3. I want to go there real quick. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn here. Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse 2 through 11, Paul is writing about his religion here, pre-Christ. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When he says this in the flesh, he's referring to religion. He's referring to the practices of Judaism. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, I did religion as perfectly as anyone could. And it was for nothing. The moment he met Christ, he realized that. His eyes were literally opened. And he saw that everything he had been and everything that he had done was trash in comparison 
to knowing Christ. All right, so that's the path of religion. What about another path? How about the path of atheism? This is the path of denying the problem. If there is no God, then I can do what I want to do. I do not need to feel guilt. I do not need to feel shame. When I die, there is nothing more. There is no eternal accountability. There is no eternal justice or anything beyond what I can see, taste, touch, hear. Psalm 14.1 tells us that, there is, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it results in, it tells us more, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Romans 1, 18 through 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Did you know you will be judged by God even if you don't believe in him? You probably don't know that. If you refuse to believe. The next path we see is the path of minimization. The path of minimization. This takes a couple different forms. The first that we see so often in the world is the declaration that humanity is basically good. That there is no sin. That humans are basically decent and good most of the time. I don't know how anybody opens their mouth and utters such stupid things. The trouble is, Neither our experience nor history nor the Bible lets the idea hold up as anything more than a fleeting hope and thought. One only needs to think of their own middle school experience to know that people are not basically good. Because either you were the one who got tortured or the one who tortured. And there aren't a lot of other room in middle school for anything else. One only needs to think on the extensive history of war and violence in this world to know that people are not basically decent to each other. One just needs to look to Scripture to see what we already know to be true. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil all the time. I've met Christians who think people are generally good. And I asked them if they've even made it through chapter 6 of Genesis. This is the path of minimization. It's not just people of the world that do it, though. Christians do it as well. We minimize our sinful condition all the time. We call it a mistake. But was it a mistake? Or was it a little bit on purpose? We use euphemisms like, we fell. And we picture a toddler tumbling and getting back up. We struggle with our sin for decades. But be honest, if we're struggling, are we 
struggling? Are we fighting? Or are we just kind of giving in? Friends, if someone breaks into my house to hurt me and my family, am I going to struggle with him? Or am I going to do everything in my power to destroy him? The Bible teaches us to put sin to death. To put sin to death. That's really strong language if sin's not really a problem for us. How about the path of ignoring? The path of ignoring. This is what I call escapism. This is the ostrich with its head in the sand pretending the problem is not really there. Can do this in a lot of different ways. The first, let me hit a few of you in the head. We do it by entering fantasy worlds of video games and novels and binge-watching marathons on Netflix. Anybody? We escape. We escape into fantasy worlds that mean nothing, that are good for nothing. Friends, by all means, play a game, read a novel, watch a show, but do not let those things keep you from the glory of time spent with the Lord. The glory of time spent with the Lord in prayer and in the word. Hear this, brothers and sisters. We make fun of the ridiculousness of humanity giving its life worship over to idols made of wood and metal. Made by human hands. We do. When those verses out of the Old Testament come up, we're like, what in the world? These people are so stupid. And yet we, we give our lives over to devices made of metal and glass made by human hands. We worship the same things. Escapism. We also escape by entering into our own heads in the drunken, high, or stoned states of mind that we may find ourselves in. We escape into the world of marijuana, some of us. The real trouble with drugs like this is that they remove us from reality. They substitute a new one, an easier, a more fun, a less pain-filled one. One only needs to look at Scripture to see the danger here. In Paul's instructions to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he writes this, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. He says, endure suffering. He doesn't say escape from it. He doesn't say ignore it. He doesn't say numb it. He says, endure it. And that's paired with the instruction to be sober-minded. Friends, I just want to say, I don't think ignoring a problem has ever caused it to go away. But I know that ignoring our dreadful spiritual state, our dreadful spiritual condition, will only end in eternal suffering. Friends, when the ostrich puts its head in the sand, which, by the way, doesn't actually happen. They don't do that. But if they did, it just becomes easy prey to the lion. Easy prey. 
Because now the thing that should be running from what's going to kill it is just sitting there. When we ignore our problems, we do that exactly. The next path that we might take is the path of nature. The path of nature. Now this can take various forms, but where we see it most commonly, here in Colorado, is the declaration that I don't need to be in church on Sunday morning because I'm out on the trail hiking, or I'm worshiping with a fishing pole in my hand, or whatever activity, outdoor activity, you substitute for it. We see it particularly in Colorado because I think we live in pretty much the most beautiful state in the Union. People love the outdoors, and they will give up everything to be in it. Sometimes you hear people say that God is in the mountains, he's in the trees, he's in the lakes and the rivers, and yes, God is omnipresent, he is everywhere. And yes, there are people like me who love going to the mountains because it, it helps me feel close to God. It does. But we should never mistake the idea that God is in the mountain when we say that God is in the mountains. He is above creation, beyond it. The reason why someone like me can go to the mountains and feel closer to God is because I am enjoying his creation. But I know people who worship his creation. It's their life. And it's nothing. It's creation. It's just like us. In Romans 1, what we read is that we see God's nature. We see some of his character, his power, and his majesty. Amen, right? We look at the mountains. We look at the sunsets. And we see God's handiwork, and it should cause the Christian to worship God. But Romans 1 tells us that that knowledge, that seeing the majesty and power of God in nature has never saved anyone. Never. Never. Guys, there are a lot of paths, but they all land where my family landed on our hike unable to get to where we wanted to be. So that the people who were lost are still lost. So the people who were believing of lies and stuck in lies are still stuck in lies. So the dead sinners are still dead. Dead. Now you might see why this is pretty offensive. Because we believe this, Christian, you should. It's really bad news. And try as we may, or not try at all, there is no way for us to be saved by any other path but Jesus Christ. There is no effort we can bring to the table. There is no work that we can do. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is saying, I am the only way. And there is no other. This is the gospel that we read here. This is the gospel. When Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not light. He is the light too, by the way. It is the gospel. Hear this. To you who are lost, Jesus says, I am the way. Lost people may not know where they are. Lost people do not know how to get from where they are to where they're going. 
This ties us back to verse 3, right before all of this. When Jesus says, I will take you to myself. He says, I will take you to myself. We don't have to know how to get somewhere if we have someone who's going to lead us there who knows the way. I'm going to tell you there are a few times in my life that I was truly lost. I've been lost in the urban sprawl that is San Francisco before cell phones. When I got on and off the wrong bus in the wrong neighborhood. I've been lost in the wilderness without a single landmark to orient myself with. I've been lost in my sins and my trespasses. And in each one of these situations, I was utterly powerless to get myself out, to find my own way. I required help. Jesus is the way out of lostness. He is the way. Jesus says narrow is the path that leads to righteousness, but wide is the path that leads to destruction. The narrow paths are always the hardest ones to follow. And we can't stay on that path without a guide. And Jesus says, I am the way. We need to trust in him. Friends, hear the gospel again. To you who are caught up in the lies of this world, Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Anyone and everyone buys into the lies. This is the devil's play. This is where the devil lives in lies. From the first temptation when the devil said to Eve, did God really say? Well, actually, Satan, yes, he really did say. To his greatest temptation when he tempted Jesus three times. It's all about lies. This world thrives on lies. Think about the paths that we've already been over today, that we've talked about. Each one are filled with particular and specific and big lies. Lies that we can save ourselves. Lies that we do not need saving. Lies that marijuana is good for us. Lies of our continued struggling with sin instead of defeating it and putting it to death. Lies about the worship of false gods. Lies about escapism. Lies about ignoring the problems we face and the problems of this world. Every path that doesn't lead to the Father is full of lies. Full of them. Apart from Christ, we buy these lies. And the reality is there are times when we are in Christ that we begin to buy lies. We build our lives on those lies. Particularly striking in the story of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and before the crucifixion, he's talking with Pilate. Pilate asks him if he's king. Jesus says, you say so. He was face to face with truth, and he still would not see it. Hear this. Then Pilate said, said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to what? To the truth. To bear witness to the truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth, truth listens to my voice. Pilate betrays himself right here. Pilate says to him, what is truth? In other words, Pilate is one who doesn't listen. He dismisses the truth standing right in front of him. Jesus says, I am the truth to you and I who have been caught in lies. This is the gospel. There is no truer true than Jesus. He is the truth of God. In him there is no falsehood. He can be trusted. Leave the lies behind and see the truth of Christ. All right, so we've looked at what? We've looked at loss. We've looked at those who are stuck in lies. So what's left? Those who are dead. Let me tell you this right now. If you are dead, hear the gospel. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not a pretty picture that's being painted about us. In the opening words, and we've preached on this before, it says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Now I've used this image before, I will use it again. If you were to speak to a corpse and ask it to jump, would it jump? If you were to speak to a corpse and ask it to eat, would it take a bite? If you were to speak to a corpse and ask it to worship God, would it raise its hands and sing praises with its mouth? No. No. And no. A corpse cannot hear. It cannot see. It cannot do anything. It lies there lifeless. And every path that is apart from Christ. Here's the crazy thing. Every path that is apart from Christ assumes that a corpse can do good things. Every path that doesn't lead through Christ to the Father assumes that dead things can do these things, can do good things even. The exception of atheism, in that case they assume a corpse can't do good things, but they also assume a corpse doesn't need to do things. There's no purpose, there is no value, there is nothing that matters. Do you believe that corpses can do good things? I hope not. Not on their own anyway. Jesus says, I am the life. Right, he said, I am the way to those who are lost. Right? Because he's the solution. He said, I am the truth to those who are stuck in lies because he's the solution. He says, I am the life to those who are dead. Why? 
Because he's the solution. He is. It's in him that we might find life out of death. If there is any hope for those who are dead of ever living again, it must be through him, the Lord of life, who gave his life so that we could live. Romans 6 tells us that we are, if we have been baptized into his death, we too die with him, but we are then raised with him in his resurrection to new life. Hear the gospel. Hear the gospel. To those who are lost, he is the way. To those who are in lies, he is the truth. And to those who are dead, he is life. How? How? How is it possible that those who are lost could be found, that those who are in lies could find the truth, that those who were dead could become alive? He tells us. He declares to us. Let me read this verse again for us. Oops, sorry. He says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth, and I am the life. He says, I am. This is not idle language, okay? This I am that he is declaring here goes back to the moment that Moses met God for the first time in the burning bush, and God introduced himself as what? He says, I am who I am. This is the name of God. And Jesus here declares that. He does this seven times, actually. There are seven statements that are the I am statements. And the thing that's significant about them is that each one isn't just saying I am God. He's actually using an Old Testament metaphor for the self-revelation of God that we see. He says, I am the bread of life to those who needed food. He says, I'm the light of the world. I am the door and the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he will say, we'll read in a few weeks, I am the true vine. Each one of these images is part of God's self-revelation in the Old Testament. So that those who would read the word and know it would recognize God when they saw him. These are Jesus' self-declarative moments, saying, I too am God. Sometimes there's people who want to minimize what Jesus is saying here. They say, no, he's just kind of talking about being kind of like God, like the heart of God, the character of God. Friends, I just want to point out, when Jesus makes these statements, two things happen. His followers fall down in awe and worship him, which is only a thing for God, and his enemies want to kill him. After one of these, he goes on to say, very explicitly in John 10, I and the Father are one. And at that moment, literally, they all want to kill him, all these people. Because he has just done something that nobody is allowed to do. He's equated himself with God. C.S. Lewis told us that a man who makes statements such as these is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is God. 
Our salvation requires Jesus to be God. For no man could save another man because there is no man that is sinless until Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It required the nature, perfect nature of God to be the priest to bring us before him for eternity. Verse 16 tells us then, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you keep reading from there into chapter 5, what we actually discover, it tells us very explicitly, is that the reason Jesus could make the ultimate sacrifice for us that would buy our salvation is because he didn't first need to make a sacrifice for himself. Because he was sinless. Because when the devil came to him with lies, he resisted those lies with the truth of the word of God and his own character. Friends, it is simply foolish to have the way, the truth, and the life right in front of you and keep looking for other paths. But it's not only foolish, it is folly as well. For if there were many ways, if there were many ways, then why did Jesus have to die? Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any other way, then take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours. Because there was no other way. There is no other path that will get you to the Father but Christ alone. No other way. Because he is the one and the only. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and yes, also the only light. If you're still looking, stop. If you're still looking, stop and turn to Jesus now. Because there is no other way. All other paths are vain. If you are a Christian and you are still wandering around and trying to figure out whether or not this or this or this might get you there, or if you think in any way that what you bring to the table is some level of righteousness, some level of good works and good things, stop, because there is no other way. We don't bring anything. There's only one way. Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news for people who are lost, stuck in lies, and dead in their sins. And this is good news for you and I as we've been saved. 
rescued by the only one who could. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much. God, for your word, the confidence of your word, the declarations that you made, Lord, that, that we would be saved, that we would believe, that we would turn our lives and, and repent of everything else and turn to you and you alone. I do pray, Lord, right now that if there's anyone in the hearing of this that has not given their life to you, God, I pray that your spirit would draw them to you, that they would see you as the only path, the only way forward and forsake all other things, to repent of those things, to put them behind them and turn only to you. God, I pray that you would help us, rescue us, but we cannot do it on our own. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your glory. We thank you for not leaving us stuck. And God, I pray that you would draw others and many more to you. God, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Amen.